Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is um, October the 9th. 2022 a sunday it's been a busy day for me an unusually busy sunday earlier today i talked to a business writer lorraine uh, marchand she has a new book out the innovation mindset about how we transform ourselves and our industries and our economies and in that conversation um we talked or i referred to another conversation i'd had last month with another business writer, the editor actually of Entrepreneur Magazine, Jason Pfeiffer. He has a new book out called Build for Tomorrow, Embracing Change, Adapting Fast and Future-Proofing Your Career. And to describe uh, that conversation, uh, we use the term Darwin 2.0. We had never done a show on Charles Darwin, the great 19th century naturalist. Uh, and I think my use of Darwin 2.0 was uh, rather flippant uh, and unfair, certainly on Darwin. Today, we're going to make things a little bit fairer. We're going to talk more seriously about the great naturalist, Charles Robert Darwin, born on uh, 12th of February, eight, uh, 1809, and dying on, in April 1882. Perhaps the greatest man of the 19th century, and arguably one of the greatest figures in human history. Uh, When we talk about Darwin, of course, we think about his book on the origins of species. And we also talk about something called Darwinianism, this theory of evolution, of competition, which most of us, or most of us non-scientists, don't really, I think, understand. We're going to talk, though, not so much about the science of Darwinianism and of Charles Darwin, but his humanity with my guest today, Kay Harrell. Uh, She has an unusual new book out, a take on Darwin, which many haven't uh, observed. Her new book is Darwin's Love of Life, A Singular Case of Biophilia. And Kay is joining us from the Hudson Valley in New York. Uh, Kay, welcome. Um, Thank you. Before we get to your theory of Darwin, place him in historical terms. I I made the throwaway remark, the cliche, that not only was he probably the greatest man of the 19th century, but one of the greatest men in history. Is that fair? Is it a, a, a dumb thing to say? Well, you know, a lot of people were thinking evolutionary thoughts in Darwin's day, but he was a terrific writer and he was a careful researcher. And I think he was kind of like the big face for the idea. You know, he was able, I mean, he definitely thought originally, no doubt about that, but there there were similar ideas floating around. Yeah, well, there always are. He certainly had a big face, um, an unusual face, a uh, a very distinguished face as a young man, as an older man. Uh, particularly, I think, as an older man with his bushy beard. In in very uh, simple terms, Kay, how would you argue his accomplishment? What did 
Darwin achieve? What did he think? What was so original about his idea or ideas? I, I think he, he amassed a lot of evidence and he made a very rigorous argument. So those were his two skills were really, he was a big taker of information, you know. I mean, there's this new uh, uh, exhibition going around about Darwin of, of 15,000 letters that he wrote and received during his life. I mean, he was out there talking about it. He was out there collecting the information. And, and he, he, he just, he was a big synthesizer as well as an original thinker. And that, that, I think that was one of his big gifts. The originality of your book is it's not a formal um, biography. It's a series of essays. And you have this very unusual take, which in my mind, I'm certainly no Darwin expert, though I've read a couple of his larger biographies. My mind makes a lot of sense. Your book is called Darwin's Love of Life. And the subtitle, which gives away what you're arguing, is a singular case of biophilia. Now, biophilia, uh, for those uh, in our audience um, who don't know what that word means, suggests, and I'm borrowing from Wikipedia, uh, that humans possess an innate tendency to seek connections with nature. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a term, I think, that was invented by the great naturalist, uh, E.O. E. Wilson, um, mm -hmm. and uh, which he articulated in his book, Biophilia. So, okay, perhaps you might say a little bit about this word, biophilia, and what you mean by it, and whether you essentially rely on E.O. Wilson's definition. Um, first of all, yes, I absolutely rely on his definition, uh, and I worship him. I mean, it's just, you know, one of the things I dread about doing conversations like this is someone will ask me to defend sociobiology, which I'm just simply not going to do because I'm just diehard about it. But in terms of the the word itself, it really has a, a, a more of a backstory. It goes back to Eric Fromm, who was a psychoanalyst and had this book. And I, the name of it is, it is escaping me right now, but he, he was very famous for articulating a notion of biophilia as opposed to at one end and the other end, biophilia being love of life and necrophilia being uh, an attachment to death and, and he really articulated this kind of mindset of do you love life do you love nature do you have compassion or are you really just blue gloomy and you know destructive so it, it really predates Wilson but Wilson gave it the big big uh PR thing you know he had his class such a major figure and everybody listened to him and now biophilia has a big uptake among um uh, architects and designers who are building things in signature you know you see these buildings happening in europe with trees on the sides of the buildings uh keeping the, the houses cool keeping the apartments cool and so that's a direction that biophilia has gone into now. But it wasn't Wilson. Wilson gave it a good blast into public attention. But even before that, 
um, Eric Fromm had defined it. But there were many, many people talking about the, the ideas of biophilia without the word before him. So it, it wasn't just Wilson, even though he deserves all the credit in the world. When one thinks of Darwin and his theories, um, one could imagine that his biophilia was a cause of the theory, that he couldn't have got to his theory of life without being a biophiliac. And on the other hand, I guess you could argue that it was coming to that conclusion, beginning to understand uh, human species place in the universe and amongst other species that would have itself stimulated uh, biophilia. H how do you analyze it, Kay? Where did his biophilia come from? Did he have it as a young man or did he develop it over his life? Well, you know, William James said something like, some people have a certain degree, people have a certain trait. They either have a little bit or a lot of it, or they have a super amount of it. And I think Darwin's whole family had this trait. I mean, when you look at his grandfather, and his grandfather foresaw um, uh, trips to the moon. I mean, people were saying, like, you're loco. You know, no one, no one's ever traveling to the moon. There's no train to the moon. But so the whole family was able to imagine truths that didn't happen. So it was a family characteristic. They, 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 so it was there from when he was a child. And at the same time, the evolutionary thoughts were in the environment. And one thing that I, I have to say about the word singular is it's one of Darwin's favorite words. Whenever he's in love with something, he says it's singular. And I picked up that word for my title because I felt that it was so important about him that he was singular, he looked for the singular, and, and, and that, that's how he came to it. You know, it was in the air, but it was also in his family, and um, yeah. Yeah, so that singularity goes both ways. So you suggest it was part of his family, of the Darwins, a remarkable family, also of the Huxleys. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, so many important scientific and artistic works have come out of that whole family. Uh, absolutely, and the Wedgwoods, I mean. It wasn't singular, it was the reverse. It was collective, if anything. I, you know what? I think that's really true. I mean, listen, you know, his uncle was Wedgwood. You know, his wife was a Wedgwood. And they were innovators, you know, off, off the roof. They were capitalists, right? They were the ones with the money. They were capitalists, but they also, you know, they were uh, liberals in the way that uh, you don't think the English aristocracy, like they were very much like into the uh, anti-slavery movement. You know, Josiah Wedwood made, made a coin about freeing slaves. And so they were always in the vanguard of, of um, truth and, and, and goodness.
So that was, and I, and, and I love the fact that you're showing this picture because this picture is um, part of my book because this plant that he's showing, I don't know where he got it, but it was from- This is as a seven, young man. This is in his- uh, He was seven or eight in this picture. And right. this plant that he's holding was something that they got through their social connections with the, you know, the uh, horticultural gardens in London. But that plant was from the southernmost tip of Africa. So he was kind of really showing off this beautiful plant. But he, Tell me a little know, bit, um, uh, Kay, about your take on his wife. You mentioned uh, Emma Wedgwood. What is it about her that both, again, reflected his biophilia and perhaps built on it? She, she herself was from a remarkable family and was in herself a, a remarkable woman. Yes, she, she was indeed a very remarkable woman. And I, I think she was able to understand him, you know, when, when, when they first got made or what, what, no, when they were flirting and, and, and um, you know, they knew each other from childhood because they were cousins. But she said to him, you know, I'm not going to ask you to be what she called a holiday husband. You know, she, she said, I'm never going to ask you to not give up your work for me. And, and she really understood his commitment, even though she was upset about what he was saying. And, and, and she was upset that he wouldn't get to heaven. You know, all those things upset her. But at the same time, she supported him. She edited him sentence by sentence. You know, she read to him novels that he loved to hear. And he, he, and you know, in his later life, he was really, really sick. And she was just an incredible to him. And, and she really was able to commit to his vision. Even hey, though um, you mentioned his ambivalent attitude to religion. One of the reasons, I think, for that was... Uh, his devastation after his daughter died in 1851. Do you think that one can be simultaneously um, a biophiliac and a Christian, or does it require a choice of one or the other? No, and he I, chose biophilia over Christianity. No, I, I think the two are really insane. You know, that if you love life, and you love nature, and you love all of the creations of the world, you know, from barnacles to, you know, mushroom fields that extend for, you know, 2,000 acres, and, and Christianity, uh, I think it's actually like, um, I think they're the same. You know, I think that's one of the duties of this project is that it's a way to synthesize. You know, there are a lot of people who argue that, you know, you can say that God created evolution, you know? Mm. It, it, and that's really so... Yeah, there are many, um, I'm, I'm not sure on E.O. Wilson, but there are a, a number of leading biologists who themselves remain Christian, as you suggest. Uh, right. Okay, one of the remarkable, I mean, there's so many remarkable things about Darwin, but one of the most astonishing things is that after his round-the-world voyage on the Beagle, which itself most school children know about, traveling around the world, collecting uh, 
much of the evidence that would support his theories. He never went overseas again. Um, in terms of this biophilia, was it, again, developed during this these travels? Was it compounded by uh, him visiting the, the Galapagos and, 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 and the Falklands and going no, to South I, I don't, Africa? I don't think, no, I don't think so. I think it was there from the day he was born and that everything he saw he fell in love with because of his biophilia. You, you know, when you read his um, travelogue, the, the book they, they normally call um, The Voyage of the Eagle, and, um, but it has, you know, a longer or fancier title, like the Journal of Researches on His Majesty. I, I can't remember. I should go and get it. But it's got this incredibly long title. But no, it was there from the day he was born. And everything he saw, he saw through that lens. I, I don't think everything he saw stimulated it. I think it was there in place and enabled him to see and to fall in love with. You know, and one of the things I, I really found so striking about his travelogue was his feelings about the Amazon basin because he was like delirious with joy when he saw that stuff. And today we know that that area is a repository of diversity. And I feel like his biophilia enabled him to resonate to that unbelievable diversity and to see it and to feel it and to react to it without words, without knowledge that he just felt it. Uh, and it didn't inspire him to feel it. He was predisposed to feel it. That, that, that's, my, that's my feeling. He not just felt it, he lived it. He was a very, right. almost a religious walker. Uh, so even if he didn't travel after that Beagle trip, every day he would walk extensively in, uh, in his house in, in, in Kent. Uh, how would you connect this, his biophilia with his love of walking? Are they connected? Well, he was, you know, his kids loved to go on his walks with him. You know, they felt like he was kind of magical and, you know, he could always spot birds' nests, you know, and they were like, wow, you know, the man can hardly walk and he's seeing this bird's nest. And it was just his opportunity to admire the flowers, and he was always in love. You know, that, that's, and, and when he was walking in his garden, the sand walk, which you just saw a picture of, when he was walking there, he was always in love with nature. I mean, he couldn't go out the, the front door without being, you know, I mean. And, was he a and, kind of, um, perhaps, rather than a Christian, of course, might it be fair to call him a pantheist? I'm afraid I don't know the definition. Of well, that. he believed that he, he prayed to everything around him. Everything he saw had a magical yes. religious quality, which is particularly ironic given that we remember him not as a pantheist or as a man articulating the magical qualities of the world, but as a scientist. No, he was definitely in love with the world in a very 
you know, in fact, one of the people who, um, the, the, <laughs> my first round of reviewers on this book uh, said it was really, you know, not worth publishing <laughs> and, and, and they hated it. <laughs> I mean, my editor just believed in me. But one of the reviewers said Darwin was a romantic and, and she is not paying enough attention to how romantic he was. But in fact, he was truly, truly a romantic. He was in love with nature. And um, that, that was his, his, his beauty. His, his biophilia must have placed the human species in the context of, of many other species. I know in the book you write, of a, uh, you, 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 you refer, of course, to Wilson's book, but you, you write extensively, or in, in part at least, about his affection for dogs. Were dogs his favorite species? Were there something magical for him about dogs? No, I don't think so. I think that just dogs were, you know, able to be in the home with him. But, you know, he had affection for everything. I mean, he had affection for earthworms. He had affection for orchids. He had affection for barnacles. He, he had affection for every, every species. It's just that dogs, you know, they live in the house with you. So you, you, get, to, you get to have that bond be amplified. The bond with nature is amplified. But and, and and he didn't even like he didn't like cats actually. He didn't. But no, he didn't like cats. You know, and it's interesting because my father never liked cats and he loved dogs. We but, wouldn't have been very comfortable in our internet age with this obsession with cats. Right. No, but but at the same time, one of his daughters was a, a you know crazy cat lady, and he remembered every single cat of hers their names and their weirdnesses and he 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 cherished her love of cats so it really it really wasn't about dogs per se it was just that they were handiest <laughs> you know? it's interesting that uh, I, I joked about him not being very contemporary in the fact he didn't like cats and we live in the internet age where everyone seems obsessed with cats but i think mm -hmm. your presentation of Darwin makes him into a very contemporary figure. We've done a number of shows on humans' relations with other species. They're all, I guess, in their own way, uh, biophiliacs. Uh, Ed Yong, for example, the science writer at The Atlantic has a new book out, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms About Us. Carl Safina writes about our need for humility in the face of nature. His book is Becoming Wild. Uh, Jackie Higgins writes in Sentient about what we can learn about ourselves. Um, there is something very contemporary about your presentation of Darwin as a, a bio, uh, uh, as a as a biophiliac, isn't it? He he would be he wouldn't be foreign to the world that we live in intellectually. What I, I like to you know. Something that I wrote in my preface is what I, I really feel about by feeling and Darwin is that I wanted my book to make sense to him. I didn't want to say anything that I thought he wouldn't agree with. 
So if biophilia is a new term, fine. And if I'm putting him in a contemporary frame, well, you know, that's, that's, that's where I live. I'm a 21st century person. What can I say? Well, you live in the Hudson Valley. You don't even have running water. So you've, in a way, gone back to the 19th century yourself. Uh, that's right. Okay. That's right. I, I live on a well. You know, I, you know, I, I yeah, I, I do. I, I live in a kind of a, a really, you know, backward, you know, my internet is all spotty. You know, they tell me constantly I'm at the end of the line, you know. And I live next to a forest um, where, you know, my dog has... Uh, free run to you know chase after the bobcats and the bears and I do live in a kind of a backwater way but I'm, I'm loosely focused on, on what your question was which is I I, I I think it may be a new word but I think it would be a word and a concept and a frame that I hope that Darwin would say, you know, she got me. I, 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 I real. That was my goal in the book is to have is to imagine Darwin reading my book and saying, yeah, that's who I am. That's it. That's who I was. Yay, you know. And and so. And you um, think he would? Yeah. Well, I I didn't. There was no sentence in there that I didn't think. Would he think this is true? I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm loco that way. You know, I'm in love with Darwin. And and I really wanted this to be, uh, um, I, I wanted to be a ventriloquist for his soul. And and I feel like... That's, I, I like that phrase. I'm going to use that in, um, in the, for the, for the uh, interview. Ventriloquist of the soul. A ventriloquist of his soul. Yes, of Charles Darwin's song, which is yeah. it's, it's it's not an un, unambi it's not unambitious. Kay, I appreciate that ambition. I, I'm curious um, what Darwin would say about our role today, because of course the world has changed dramatically in the 150 years since he died. Um, we did a show with Justin Gregg, um, which is a kind of extension of biophilia, but taking it to extraordinary lengths. He's written a book called If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal. Um, and it's a book about uh, what animal intelligence reveals about human stupidity. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I think you would actually enjoy the book. Um, was yeah. himself, was part of his biophilia a, a skepticism towards our own intelligence and mastery of the universe? You know, that I, I, I couldn't answer that. You know, I'm not a biographer, you know, and I don't know that. Oh, but, yeah, I'm not asking you to be a biographer, but you, you said you, you wanted to be a, a ventriloquist of his soul. Um, right. If you get to his soul, what did he think of the human race? Were we rather pathetic, small-minded, trivial, nasty? He he had his. He was upset, you know, when he want, when he traveled around the world, and he saw people holding slaves and mistreating entire races of people. It really upset him, you know. He he was a, a firm believer that. 
anybody, no matter what their skin color, was a human being. They had a family. They had loves. And he understood that people could not see that. And when he was in South America, sometimes the people he saw and the slaveholders and the ranch holders mistreating uh, the, the people in bondage to them, he, he was like distraught and upset. I, I don't suppose was, he would have been a big fan of Donald Trump, would he? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. I'm, you know, although there was a lot of capitalism in that family, there, uh, there was not exploitation, you know, there, were, there just wasn't. But he definitely yeah. saw horribleness in human beings. He, 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 he wasn't seeing the world through other glasses, for sure. And if he came back today, Kay, and you're in a way bringing him back as his ventriloquist of the soul, he would see a very, very different world. The world he studied, the world he traveled in, the world he made sense of was one of many, many species. Today, there are far fewer species and, and many of the, 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 the species that survive are in great danger. What do you think Darwin would say about our current dilemma, our crisis of the planet, of the destruction of nature and of species? I, I think he would be distraught and horrified I'm upset. I I mean I just feel like you. I I feel like we we've just taken a wrong. I mean, I I don't engage in that kind of, you know. I don't I don't do what ifs. You know, I'm a yoga teacher and I I try to deal in the real. And um, but I think he would be just distraught. Totally. Well, I don't disagree. Um, and I think Emma Darwin would feel the same. Your new book, Kay, Carol, uh, Kay Harrell's new book, Darwin's Love of Life, A Singular Case of Biophilia, is, is really original, spiritual, but accurate. Congratulations, Kay, on that. I'm thrilled that those idiot scientists didn't stop the publication of the book. Um, <laughs> what other books uh, are you reading these days in your do you have electricity in your place in uh, Hudson Valley? I know you don't have running water. Yeah, no, I do. I do have electricity. I mean, I am there. there I do have. Because um, I'm romanticizing uh, you, imagining you sitting without water with candlelight reading Darwin there. What else? Are you, I, no, I, I, no, no, no. I, I, I do have electricity. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have uh, garbage services. I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm not on the power. I am on a power line. But as I said, I'm at the end of the power line. I'm on the edge of a forest. And um, uh, so uh, what else? Uh, uh, currently, I know you've got a couple of books to recommend, but two of my um, questions would be, firstly, what's your favorite biography of, of Darwin? What did you find the most useful entry into his life? And secondly, for, for those of us who are not familiar with his work, with Darwin's writing, where would you begin? Um, you know, I'm looking over at my shelf now. I mean, I think, you know, Janet Brown's two-volume two biography of him is considered the definitive one. And, um, you know, it has a lot of insight into him. And then I also, the uh, Desmond, uh, I'm, I'm just looking at uh, 
where is it? The um, the Desmond and Moore biography is really um, is yeah. Very, I've um, read that one. I think that's a good one. Yeah, I mean that's really just chock full of detail. Um, and I, I, I mean, in terms of the ideas that I think have had the most uptake that I think are most important, I really think it's Edward Wilson. Like I'm looking at my shelves and it's, you know, uh, Gene, um, just a second. I mean, one of the books that I love so much while I working was Jean's Mind and Culture by Lumsden and Wilson. And I really feel like that was like, and, and there are other books that ha have spoken to me about what I felt was about Darwin's really beauty. And love of beauty was such an important thing to me. So uh, one of the books that I really loved while I was working was Homo Aestheticus, uh, Where Art Comes From and Why by Ellen DeSanayaki. And mm. so that that book I just adored while I was writing. And then um, this, this uh, cosmologist, this astrophysicist or whatever he calls himself, is the artful universe, John Barry. He's a British cosmologist about the origins of the universe and he writes about the the role of art in um in in human development and then uh, one of the oldest books that i loved and i'm a little bit biased is art is experienced by on dewey and and all of these people have been you know everyone i've talked about near have, have been talking about how the love of life and the love of beauty have propelled us in, in our evolution as, as human beings. And, and that, that's kind of like, I, I think it's an important um, thing of Darwin's that he wouldn't necessarily have seen about himself.